I'm Rachel Johnson, co-host of the Educals Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Reverend Dr. Gordon Postill. He is the author of the book called A Long Shot Story. Prior to becoming an ordained minister, Postill's life felt meaningless and he aimlessly drifted between jobs. This book is about hope, second chances, and the impact others can have on you. So much to learn. Thanks for listening. And, and, and by the way, it would be so awesome if you would go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and uh, left a review about the podcast. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Reverend Dr. Gordon Postel is an author and retired minister who has helped thousands of people. He was ordained by the United Church of Canada in May 1980 and served congregations in Nova Scotia and Ontario before spending the last 24 years of his ministry providing spiritual care to hospice patients and their families in Florida and Massachusetts. He retired in 2015 to care for his beloved, now late wife, Robin, who had become afflicted with early-onset Alzheimer's. Postle holds a Bachelor of Arts from Laurentian University, Sudbury, a Master of Divinity from Emmanuel College, Toronto, and a Doctor of Ministry from Boston University. With his advanced clinical training, he became board-certified by the Association of Uh, the Association of Professional Chaplains, APC, and served four years as the APC State Representative of Massachusetts. He has extensive expertise in critical incident stress management, CISM, and end-of-life health care ethics. After the 9-11 terrorist attacks, he led a CISM team from Naples, Florida, to New York City to provide support for the NYPD personnel. He also served a decade as the Ethics Committee Chair of the Hospice and Palliative Care Federation of Massachusetts and offered end-of-life ethics workshops throughout Massachusetts. Prior to becoming an ordained minister, Postel's life felt meaningless and he aimlessly drifted from such jobs as nickel miner and security guard. A college dropout in his 20s, he battled addictions to alcohol and Valium, frequently took LSD and smoked marijuana, and had two run-ins with the law before an astonishing call to the ministry and the bountiful blessings which quickly followed gave him a desperately needed second chance and saved his life. Reverend Dr. Postel resides in Boston, Massachusetts, and today we're focused on his book called A Long Shot Story. Gordon, thanks for joining me today. Glad you're here, and say hi to everybody. Well, uh, it's a great honor to be with you and your listeners, Stephen. 
Well, I'm glad you're here. And uh, yeah, today we're going to focus on your book called A Long Shot Story and your purpose for writing it. In the beginning of your book, you talk about when you were young and your father would flood your backyard so it would freeze and make a place to play hockey and such for you and your sister and friends. Could you talk about this? I, I can't, couldn't let this one go without getting you to talk about this. <laughs> That's a great place to begin. And, you know, uh, my dad wasn't the most emotionally available uh, man. Um, you know, he had had some trauma in his life. But he was, you know, a good person. Both my parents, you know, they they had their issues, but they were both, you know, very caring people. Um, but the one thing my father did, and I didn't fully appreciate this until I was much older, is, that, and I think in a way, you know, he'd go out in the wintertime and flood our backyard, uh, making a, a skating rink uh, where my sister and I could uh, have friends over and I could play some hockey uh, I think in a way he enjoyed being out flooding the rink because uh, he got to be by himself. He got to be away from the family in a way. But uh, in another way, I think it was his way of expressing his love for us. And even though he was not really gifted, uh, you know, mechanically or electrically, he did manage to uh, not only flood the rink, uh, but he would uh, attach floodlights to the clothesline so we could actually be out there at night. And so when I think of my dad, you know, uh, that's one of the dearest memories I have of him. And I think uh, it was, I think, a very pivotal way in which he could share his love for his kids. That's so cool. That's really cool. I, when I read that part, I, I read it again because I was like, this is, this is really kind of neat. <laughs> um, and, he had to, and he actually had to also fix a number of windows that my friends and I would break with errant pucks. <laughs> I like that part too. That was, it, it's, it's, something comes along with the sport, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, you know, early on, you talk about how schoolwork had been easy for you. Could you share a little bit about what you mean? Because eventually this is going to come around with something different that's going to happen. Yes, yes, it is. Well, you know, um, back in the day when I was going to school, and I, I, you know, I think things have gotten a lot better. And, you know, I went to, I went to a pretty good public school. Um, but back then, you know, a lot, of, a lot of learning had to do with memorizing, you know. And so tests, it was often... You know, just uh, certain things that you had to um, show that you knew. Um, so schoolwork for me was very easy in the sense that I've, I've got a pretty good memory, or I had a pretty good memory. I still do, actually. But, uh, but I could really cram, you know, the night before, before a test, or early in the morning before a test. And so, um, you know, just sort of, that that way of uh, just giving back to the teachers what they uh, want you to know, I was pretty adept at that. <laughs> of course, I'd forget everything, you know, uh, probably half an hour after I wrote the test. Nice. But, uh, but I did not take home any homework. I, I prided myself, uh, you know, I didn't need to do that. That's another part of this, the story that I thought was interesting is that uh, – didn't have to do any homework. I got it all done, and uh, so you could do other things. <laughs> exactly. 
which I think that's that's pretty telling too. You know, unfortunately, uh, you know, I, you you talk about how your parents kind of grow separate from each other and eventually separated, and uh, your mom got a little bit too focused on you, I guess, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so you'd escape to the pool hall. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what you learned while you're at the pool hall? I mean, what that world was like. Yeah, well, um, again, you know, I mentioned, you know, a little bit about my dad and my mom. So, like, my dad was sort of emotionally absent, and my mother was sort of the other extreme. She she tended to want to be more in, emotionally involved with my sister and me. My sister went away to boarding school early on, so it was just, you know, essentially my mom and me uh, after my um, parents separated. So I just found, you know, my mother's presence and her interest in my life, like she wanted the best for me, but I think on some level she was trying to live her life through me. And I just found that to be pretty suffocating. And so uh, to kind of have my own space, uh, there was a there was a great pool hall not too far away from where I lived. And so we're talking, you know, um, you know, 1965, 1966, uh, and it was a pretty well kept pool hall. There were there were other pool halls where I used to shoot in downtown Toronto that were, shall we say, uh, had a little different clientele. <laughs> but uh, but I would pl- uh, I would uh, shoot pool, um, and a lot of my uh, schoolmates or kids in the area would congregate up there. And I was, uh, you know, I, I had some insecurities. I was very good in sports, thank, thankfully, but I wasn't really great at uh, social interacting. But, uh, but I got to be a pretty good pool player, not excellent, um, but I won more money than I lost. And, uh, and it just gave me kind of a safe haven where, uh, you know, I could sort of just, just kind of uh, be in my own space and uh, sort of escape my worries, so to speak. Excellent. And just a note, I mean, it's, uh, you know, during the 70s, my stepbrothers got into, uh, for some reason, it was popular at flea markets to uh, be able to buy uh, pool cues that unscrewed and were in half and were in nice little cases. And, uh, they became pretty adept, especially my one <laughs> stepbrother became pretty adept at, uh, um, if nothing else, he looked fancy and did pretty well at the, <laughs> go up there and open up your case and pull out your pool cue and put it together. So yeah, I actually got a, uh, I got a pretty good pool cue and it came in the case. And I, and I especially like going downtown in Toronto and being on the subway, you know, kind of uh, making sure that people saw, you know, that I had this, uh, you know, kind of pool case in my hand. It, uh, you know, felt pretty cool. Nice, nice. <laughs> That's excellent. The uh, very cool. Um, right now, I have Paul Newman and uh, Jackie Gleason yeah. in mind. <laughs> yeah, just shoot pool fats. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. Um, Fast, steady. <laughs> nice. Uh, you know, one of the things that I want to make sure that I talk about is I'm kind of leading up to the stuff that's going to happen. And, you know, your acceptance in the university acknowledged your success in high school, yet your first and second years didn't quite go as you planned. Can you talk about what happened? Yeah. So actually, 
actually it was my first three years. So the first year, you know, I got, you know, I went away to this pretty established university, Queens University in Kingston, Ontario. I got early acceptance. But, you know, I got there and there were um, many of my peers, you know, they knew right from the get go. They wanted to be engineers, doctors, lawyers, whatever, teachers. I had no idea what I wanted to be. I really wasn't even like, why am I here kind of thing. Um, and I was also, as I say, I, I, I was uh, pretty insecure around, you know, uh, girls, women, you know, to, and there were these incredible looking co-eds and I would kind of freeze up if I ever asked them to dance. I wouldn't know what to say after the dance ended. Um, you know, but thankfully in that first week I discovered alcohol and, uh, you know, all of a sudden, like I felt like I was born again. My, my real life had finally arrived, you know, and shortly after that, you know, um, you know, weed was was close to follow and and, so, and then eventually some LSD. But in any event, uh, you know, I, I, I miraculously passed my first year. I should never have passed that first year because I really didn't go to class. But again, I was a great crammer, so I could pull all nighters. But, you know, when I went back for my second year, I met a uh, a great woman ended up spending all my time with her. She was a knockout. And, uh, you know, I didn't care. I, so I failed my second year. And then um, she, she actually left me the following summer. And so when I went back to repeat my second year, I, I really didn't care. Uh, you know, about myself at that time, my behavior was becoming more reckless. And so um, essentially, uh, it, it appeared that I was going to fail my, uh, the repeat of my second year. So here you have someone who got early acceptance to this uh, prestigious university, barely passed my first year, failed my second year, and really thought that I had failed my third year. And I left really in disgrace. Uh, you know, wanted a place to hide, and it took me up to the nickel mines in uh, in northern Ontario. That had been a lot different than those classes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, here I was. Imagine, like in 1967, in September of 1967, I'm in a, I'm in a line with a number of other students at this prestigious university to register for courses. And then three years later, essentially, I'm in another line with all kinds of men from all over the place, all ages, getting hired by the International Nickel Company in Sudbury, Ontario to be, you know, underground miners. Like that's, that's quite a, a change of venue. Definitely. Oh my gosh. And I, it, at some point it had to kind of, I mean, just, just like you retelling it right now, it's like uh, the, the fact that, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was really disheartening, you know, like I, uh, uh, you know, thank heavens that I, that I uh, proceeded to uh, 
continue to increase my intake of substances uh, just to kind of keep me from getting too close to my pain because, uh, and the mines, the mines was, they were great in a sense because they gave me a place to hide. You know, like if I'd run into any of my Queens colleagues, you know, back at university, you know, they're going on, you know, they're world beaters. If I had run into them and I did eventually run into one of them, um, you know, that would just be the, so humiliating for me. Now that was a, the beginning of a very dark six year period. And so that's what, it, what I want to use that to lead up to your book. What we're talking about today, it's, the name of it is called A Long Shot Story. So why did you write it? Okay, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so I had had, um, in, uh, in October of 2010, and, and I'd been in great shape for a long time, you know, marathon runner, working out, um, but I started to feel some shortness of breath and fatigue in, uh, in 2010 and ended up that I had a def defective aortic valve from birth and it, it finally caught up to me. So I had to have open heart surgery to have uh, my aortic valve replaced with a mechanical aortic valve. And that all went well. And on the eve of the surgery, I remember thinking that if something should happen and I should die the next day, my life had really been blessed beyond measure. You know, I had a wonderful career. I had a beautiful soulmate, my late wife, Robin. Um, but I survived. And five months later, when I was back at work, all of a sudden I had this real yearning to go back, primarily for myself initially, to go back and revisit that decade from 1970, when I was uh, on the verge of failing that second year, uh, second straight year at university and riding ice flows on frigid Lake Ontario, really hoping to die, you know, surviving the next six years of, and then having this call to ministry out of the blue, trusting that experience, going to seminary, being ordained in the United Church of Canada in 1980. So that's quite a decade from 1970 to 1980, a transformative decade. And I, I thought, you know, even though I had done a lot of inner work and I had a lot of therapy and I just felt, you know, I've got to go back and revisit that incredible period. Um, and so um, I began writing about that in um, April of 2011, and I finished it two years later. And I was writing it primarily for myself. But then when I showed uh, my wife, Robin, she was seeing the drafts and she would sort of tell me like, no, you really haven't, you haven't got that yet. You know, you need to go back and work on that. Um, and then, you know, she really thought that people could benefit from the story when it was finished. And then when I showed it to some of my friends and colleagues, just a few, they were of the same opinion that, you know, there was a lot of hope in there, a lot of encouragement. And, uh, but I really wasn't into really doing anything more with it at the time. 
and I put it in a drawer and I didn't get it out again until um, 2000 and uh, 2000, right, right at the beginning of 2020. Uh, my wife's health was declining and, um, but I had some time. And so I went back and I looked at the manuscript and I reworked some things. And then the publishing company, when I submitted it, they thought it needed an epilogue. And so that was uh, new material taking, because the original manuscript ended in 1980 when I was on a plane to begin my ministry. And so um, the whole point of going forward with publishing the book was based on the feedback that I'd got from family and friends and colleagues that uh, my story uh, could really impact other people's stories. And uh, just as I was sort of given this miraculous second chance and people came into my life, that, um, you know, my book could perhaps uh, have the same effect on others. And, and so I thought, well, if that could happen, even if that could happen for just one person, I'm all in. Well, that's excellent. The, uh, just, just a side note, your book's easy to read. Um, it actually takes you through a, a little up like a roller coaster of emotions because uh, there's some interesting fun times and you make me laugh. And then there's other times where you're like, holy crud. And, you know, and uh, you realize that uh, things are not happening that nice. And, and then, you know, you go back through the roller coaster again because some things happen. And, and uh, I just got to kudos to you because it is e easy to, to read and understand. And, uh, and uh, make you think about a lot of things. And, you know, one of the things that I want to make sure that I talk about is that, uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about how someone can transform their life from one of dissipation and self-indulgence to one of purpose and joy? I mean, the idea of opening doors long thought closed. Yeah, that's, uh, well, that's, that's, that's a great question. And uh, <laughs> the shorter answer is I'm not sure. <laughs> but, uh but I'll, I'll, I do know certain things that I, I know to be true, at least for me, is, um, you know, for me, uh, when I had this incredible spiritual epiphany, uh, you know, a longstanding non-churchgoer, and all of a sudden, well, reading the Bible just from a literary standpoint, not a religious one, and feeling swept to my knees and feeling this follow me, become a minister, which seems so bizarre, absurd. Um, so, uh, but there was, there was something about that that resonated with me. And it gave me a sense of purpose. Like I had long given up on my life ever amounting to much. Uh, quite frankly, I kind of wished that perhaps I wouldn't wake up one morning uh, you know, I was, um, I really had nothing to live for that really stirred my soul. Um, I wasn't even sure I felt my soul anymore. Um, so, so I think for me, what, what was instrumental in, in sort of embarking on this transformative journey was uh, I'd had this sense of hope. This sense of hope came to me. And hope is just so critical. Uh, so my call to ministry 
it, it gave me a sense of direction, a sense of purpose, and it gave me this sense of hope that, you know, in fact, there could be a life out there for me that I'd long given up on. That being said, it's imperative that you have people that are either in your life at the time or come into your life uh, that can help sustain you on that journey. Um, you know, so like here I was, uh, you know, I went off to seminary in uh, September of 1977, uh, you know, 11 months after this call to ministry. But before I even got to seminary, I had sort of serendipitously hooked up with this prestigious church in Toronto that took a chance on me as a candidate for the ministry. And, you know, the, the staff at that church, uh, they were uh, so supportive to me. Without them, uh, you know, I'm not even sure whether, you know, I would have lasted a week or two at seminary. So I had, I had this uh, church come in. They saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, particularly the senior minister at the time. And then when I was at seminary, within the first couple of weeks, through a woman that I had dated briefly back in the day at Queen's University, um, uh, who introduced me to a good friend of hers, I ended up being in a relationship with a woman for about a year and a half, who also was very supportive of me. Um, unfortunately, I had to let go of some of my friends from uh, uh, from days of old, because my behaviors were changing. Uh, I got into therapy again, you know, having the right people come into your life. Uh, it was a long process, but I guess what I would say, a truly transformative journey, whether you're, you know, leaving a relationship or you're, you know, changing careers or some kind of radical change, uh, it's, it's not like a, a one-shot event, you know, it's a long process and you really have to uh, stay committed to the process. Like those first three years at seminary, the, when I gave up drinking, uh, the anxiety that ensued was, was really almost paralyzing. But, you know, because of the support and because of the hope that I had received and this sense of faith that, um, you know, God's love was there for me, um, that I was valued as a person, um, you know, that's kind of what kept me going. And, and I would say it wasn't until about 15 years later that I really began to get a sense like, you know, I'm going to make this, you know, I think... I think, uh, I, you know, I think I'm good. And then, you know, it's, it's continued to this day. But at some point, if you've had the good fortune to come through the darkness, you know, down the road, you know, at your own speed, so to speak, it's important then to give back, you know. So, like, uh, uh, you know, one of the things my book is about is, is about for those of us who are in a pretty good place in our lives, uh, never underestimate the value of the extended hand. And so, you know, kind of like 
uh, just being mindful of uh, the imperative to uh, to help others in need who are struggling, and that's that's one you know primary motive for having the book published. Well, it's all there. It's powerful. The uh, and uh, you have quite a few messages which you you just you kind of all mentioned them here. And you know, one of the things that uh, I wanted to make sure that we talked about is, I mean. At, how difficult was it to change course? I mean, you, you, you basically find your calling and, uh, but how difficult was it to change that course and kind of pursue that calling? Cause you talk about a little bit about how you, you had to jettison some friends and stuff like this. Yeah. It, you know, like it was extremely difficult. Uh, and, you know, fortunately, um, you know, I did have this sense, even though, you know, my family, my friends, they thought that this call to ministry was over the top, that I had lost my mind. Um, but there was something about that. So I had I had almost like this sense of a, of a firm foundation, or at least relatively firm. <laughs> and I trusted that. And so uh, that enabled me to, to uh, pursue this calling. But like, for instance, when I was uh, that first day in seminary, uh, the first morning, you know, with, say, 40, 40 plus uh, classmates, all who have been very involved in the church, you know, they're all, they've all led pretty responsible lives. And then there's me, you know, like, I know really nothing about the church. And I, I you know, uh, I have a past that they couldn't really relate to. And to just sort of like keep breathing, you know, like it was sort of like, I just got to keep, you know, focused here. Um, but again, uh, it's, it's, it's very, very painful at the start until you start to get a sense of some, you know, you're making some headway. But I did not really feel I was making much headway for, for a while. Gotcha. The, you know, and I gotta, I gotta say one of the things that's interesting about your path that some of the others don't know them, but uh, some of the others that you were talking about that were in the same, uh, you know, there, but they had all this, this different experience moving forward is that you experienced some of the things that, uh, you know, take us down these other paths and the different emotions. I mean, you, it's, you've really experienced it as opposed to someone who's trying to give you advice based upon uh, their thoughts or what they've taught or, what they've been taught or learned. Uh, I mean, what are your thought, thoughts about that? Cause I mean, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, as my life unfolded and, um, you know, in my parish ministry, but particularly in 24 plus years of hospice ministry, um, I think the fact that I'd had all those pretty dark experiences uh, and thankfully come through them, but there's no doubt in my mind that, that, that those experiences really deepen my capacity for feeling compassion and empathy uh, for others, deepen my uh, sense of uh, tolerance and patience. Um, and it's, it's interesting, you know, like my parishioners and my hospice patients and families and I never really uh, disclose much about my personal life with them. 
And for all intents and purposes, I look, you know, pretty healthy. I was pretty fit. So I looked like, you know, hey, you know, I had, I had my act together, so to speak. They would never have any idea about what I had been through. But on a deeper level, I believe that they knew. And some of them told me, they said, like, uh, I don't know you uh, on a personal level, Gordon, or Reverend Gordon, they used to call me. But I, I believe that you know what suffering is. And so people felt a real sense of ease with me. Uh, you know, I would be there for them as a compassionate, non-anxious presence. And I could, and and I think people had a sense that I wouldn't run away from their pain, you know, because I knew what I knew what pain was, and uh, I've done a lot of inner work. You know, if you haven't done your own inner work about your own fears and anxieties, it's almost impossible, I would say, to truly be present to others with their pain and anxiety, because it will just, you know, it'd be too threatening for you. So, so I guess uh, the bottom line is all those experiences I had early on, they, they, they made me a much more, um, they made me, uh, I think, a much more effective um, pastoral minister. That's excellent, I, and I can see why. The, you, know, you know, and it's just as a note, I mean, and it's obvious that what happened here, which is one of the messages of your book, is that, you know, how to take advantage of being given a second chance, and you've done that. So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts about, I mean, tell, giving someone advice about, you know, when you get that second chance, it's time to go out there and grab it and do something with it. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, another great question. Um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, some of us, and, and I think in a way I might have had more than, you know, a second chance. Uh, but so it may be a third or a fourth or a fifth chance. But the bottom line is at some point, and hopefully it can be the second chance opportunity than the 14, 14th chance, um, is, is to recognize that in spite of your despair, in spite of your sense of hopelessness and meaninglessness, that to be able to recognize that an opportunity is just kind of perhaps appeared out of nowhere. You know, it could be related to a career change, a relationship change, uh, uh, you know, like a, a, a behavioral change. Uh, but there is an opportunity and, and, you know, really I would just encourage people if you, if you, if you're able to see that, that once you see it to try and seize it, you know, sort of, um, but again, you can't do that by yourself. You really need, you really need to have the people come into your life to otherwise that second chance or, 14th chance will never have liftoff. But I was lucky. I was lucky that this spiritual epiphany was just so, I think the fact that it was so bizarre, that it was so over the top, it was hard to dismiss. You know, like if it had just sort of been somewhat, you know, kind of, uh, you know, somewhat, you know, understandable, 
um, I, I probably would have written it off, but it was so over the top that I was like, I think there's something to this and I got to find out. So I, so when I, you know, when I went to seminary, I had no idea, like almost right up till when, till I was ordained three years later that this was going to work out for me. But, but I had to do everything I could uh, to give it, you know, sort of due diligence. That's awesome. And it, it makes me think that it just going back to something you said earlier is that it makes me think, I don't know if you ever had a conversation with any of those who had the chance to decide whether you got in or not, um, what they were thinking when they let you in. Um, cause it's some of your competition that you described, <laughs> or, or I don't know whether to call it competition or not, but you're the, the people who would become colleagues. Uh, it's, I just, I just thinking it would have been interesting to have a conversation like that. So, cause it definitely paid off for you. So that's cool. Yeah. I've actually been able to reconnect over the last number of years with some of those classmates, uh, you know, from seminary and, uh, you know, and, and, and there were a couple of them that really thought that, you know, I <laughs> quite possibly, I wasn't going to make it. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, um, toward, at, at the end of your book, you uh, spend some time talking about um, your, your life and working with um, your wife, Robin. And I was just wondering if you could share some of the life and death lessons that you uh, learned from um, not just ministering to all the other people, but also being the primary caregiver for Robin. Yeah. Ah, you know, she, uh, such a truly beautiful soul, Robin. And, uh, you know, we met on a beach in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, out of the blue. She was up from Boston with her sister and I was attending to what I call my beach ministry. <laughs> but anyways, we met and it wasn't uh, too long after that, that, uh, you know, we fell in love and got married in 83 and, she was such an extraordinary woman, uh, so gifted, um, grounded. And as I mentioned in my book, I think uh, her, her loyalty and her integrity throughout our marriage was critical for me, but especially in those, say, first 10 years of our marriage. Um, you know, she was the key person for me. And we had this beautiful rapport. Uh, we loved deeply and you know we felt at ease with each other and we had uh, essentially about 32 years of enjoying each other and then she started to develop uh, symptoms of you know early onset alzheimer's and i uh, i i quit my hospice job in 2015 to care for her and uh really the ultimate ministry for me. Nothing will ever be as meaningful or fulfilling or as important. Uh, and it was such an honor for me to care for her in her time of vulnerability as she had cared for me, you know, early in our marriage. Um, that being said, I don't think I could have cared for her with the level of devotion and, um, you know, just gratitude that I did day after day uh, without learning, you know, all the many lessons from my hospice patients and families and my former parishioners, how they dealt with situations that came up in their families. Um, 
And, uh, and you know, those lessons uh, really played a huge role in the, in the manner in which I was able to care for Robin, you know, right up until she died. And, um, you know, I'm still, uh, it's just been over a year since she died, and I'll be grieving her for the rest of my life. I know that. But, but at least I know that, you know, I went the distance for my girl, <laughs> and I was able to go the distance because uh, largely on account of the fact of what I had learned from incredibly courageous and resilient folks over the years that I provided pastoral care for. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, I guess I, I understand how um, personal this, inf- this, this last little bit especially is. So, um, but thank you, uh, Gordon. I, Gordon, your, your book called A Long Shot Story is powerful. It's inspirational. And if someone wanted to know more about you and what you do, where would you send them? Yeah, so, um, and I got to say that I'm just so grateful for this opportunity to share with you, uh, Stephen, and your listeners. Uh, so um, I actually have a website, www.gordonpostel.com, G-O-R-D-O-N-P-O-S-T-I-L-L, gordonpostel.com. And they can go to the website, learn more about me, learn more about the book. You can buy the book off the website, or you can buy the book from Amazon. Um, and, uh, you know, as I say, the whole purpose in going ahead with the publishing and trying to do some marketing in my book is I truly believe, and this is what's happened so far, anyone that I know, and a lot of people I don't know that have read the book, They've got back to me and they've told me that, you know, the book has really been very meaningful and helpful. They've passed it on to others. And um, again, if if my book can help uh, folks, particularly those longing for a second chance to experience some some hope uh, that really wasn't on the table for them, if my book can help change that and kind of help them move on with their lives, then... um, you know, Texas Hold'em, you know, the saying, I'm all in. <laughs> excellent, excellent. The, uh, and I'll, I'll put uh, links to your website in my uh, show notes page so they'll be able to find your information too, by the way. So good stuff. Uh, um, Gordon, I got two last questions I want to ask you that I like to ask my guests. And the first one goes like this. When so much is going on that you become overwhelmed, what stops you from quitting? <laughs> I guess gratitude. You know, I just have this, uh, and even like uh, through Robin's illness and after her death, um, I think I have this underlying sense of gratitude um, and just try and this sense of like, let's, uh, you know, just take today as it evolves. And in my own way, you know, maybe I can help make a difference. And also, uh, you know, there's the adage one day at a time. But when you're having a tough time, it's one breath at a time. Excellent. Excellent. Last question for you. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If given the chance to say thank you, who would it be and what would you say? Absolutely. And I'm very grateful that I, I, I had the opportunity to thank him before he died. 
And that's the, uh, he wasn't a teacher per se, but he was the senior minister at Timothy Memorial Church in Toronto, who picked up the phone one day when I called to see if that church would know of some outpost of a congregation that would take a chance on me. His name was uh, Dr. George Morrison. And, uh, and he, he, uh, he was the one, he was, the, he was instrumental in kind of arranging for me to get the kind of endorsement I needed to go to seminary. Uh, and I was able to uh, thank him and his wife uh, and to actually visit them out in, uh, out in British Columbia uh, and, and personally thank, thank him for uh, taking a chance on a long shot like me. That is so cool. Uh, that's excellent. You're able to talk to him too. I, I love that. Uh, um, Reverend Dr. Gordon Postel, it's been great talking with you. I can't thank you enough for sharing your book called A Long Shot Story. It's inspiring. Wishing you the very best in all you do. Thanks an awful lot, Stephen. My best to you and your listeners. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.